morning is 1 Kings chapter 12, the verses 1 through 24. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've just sung from Psalm 82 and earlier from Psalm 94, and we're reminded by these songs and also by our text of the fact that the message of Scripture and the message of the Gospel is so far-reaching. It has political implications. It has implications for society and how society ought to be rightly ordered. And we see these things also in our text. This chapter that we read, 1 Kings 12, describes one of the great turning points in Israel's history. It's the end of that first political stage of their history, the United Kingdom, all the way from Judges and through Saul and through David and finally to Solomon. It's the end of that kingdom and the beginning of a very new and very different kind of kingdom, a different chapter in Israel's history, the divided kingdom. And that chapter is going to last right on until both kingdoms ultimately end up in exile. It's a very shocking chapter chapter 12. You read it and you're just amazed at Rehoboam's stupidity, his foolishness. You can't help but think, how can this be the son of Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived? You know, you read Proverbs and it repeatedly repeatedly says, my son, listen to this. My son, pay attention to this. My son, watch out for that. And and Rehoboam is the son of to whom Solomon was writing. All indications are he was Solomon's firstborn son. He was only a year old when Solomon came to the throne. And we actually don't read about any other sons mentioned in the Bible. So during those first years of Solomon's reign, when he still loved the Lord, he wrote Proverbs to this little boy, Rehoboam, urging him to seek after wisdom. And so it's just mind-blowing that now when you see Rehoboam as an adult, this is the man that Rehoboam grew up to be. And maybe in this you see the effect of Solomon's hypocrisy, forsaking the Lord and serving other gods while telling his son that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, this chapter starts in Shechem in in verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now, it's it's not just a minor detail that this happened in Shechem. You know, we're not familiar with Israel's geography and history to, to, to such a great degree. But this wasn't the normal place for a coronation. And anyone, any Israelite at the time would have immediately recognized that. David had made Jerusalem the capital city. And so that's naturally where Solomon would have been anointed as king. And that's where you would expect Rehoboam also to have been made king. But instead, he goes to Shechem, which is way, way up in the north of Israel, in the territory of Ephraim. So it tells you something about the political tensions that existed in Israel at this time. There was always that tension between Judah in the south and Israel in the north, with the northerners kind of feeling like they were underrepresented. They weren't getting the benefits of having the king in their territory. And so now Rehoboam, instead of being anointed in Jerusalem, he realizes there's a risk of alienating the rest of Israel. So he goes way up to Shechem in order to keep the support of those northern tribes. The politicians in Jerusalem would have recognized that they, they, they needed this token of inclusion. 
And so this, this detail already sets the stage for us. It shows us the underlying tensions and problems in the kingdom. Rehoboam is going to need to be a wise and very cautious king if he's going to keep the support of these northern tribes. He had a lot to lose, and things were already tense. Well, as soon as Jeroboam heard about this assembly being organized in Shechem, he packed his bags and returned from Egypt. We saw Jeroboam a few weeks ago uh, under, under Solomon. He, he was a taskmaster over, over uh, a number of the tribes of Israel, the, the forced labor, and he ultimately fled to Egypt because Solomon suspected him of an uprising. And he was a very natural leader among the northern tribes. So he hears about an assembly in Shechem, and, well, those are his stomping grounds. And so he recognized the opportunity that stood before him. If Rehoboam is going to go up to his territory to get the approval of his people, well, this would be his opportunity to get there and speak on their behalf and then solidify his own position as their speaker, their representative. So Jeroboam heads straight up from Egypt to Shechem. So we see a very tense moment in Israel. The northern ten tribes have grievances, and they're not afraid to bring those grievances to Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is going to have to be very wise and cautious in how he deals with them, or he could ultimately lose them altogether. So all the assembly of Israel, it says, went to, to before Rehoboam in Shechem. And of course, that's not every man, woman, and child in Israel. Those are the representatives of Israel. And they came before Rehoboam with Jeroboam at their head. And Jeroboam said to Rehoboam in verse 4, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. It's actually a very reasonable request. You don't see a spirit of rebellion here in Jeroboam, although we can tell from other parts of, of kings that there was that already fermenting. The northern tribe's grievances had to do with all the forced labor in, in, in the north that Solomon had instituted. You can read about that in chapter 5. He had a draft of 30,000 men who would be taken out of their homes for certain periods of the year and would do physical labor for free for the government. They would go to Lebanon in shifts, 10,000 at a time, one month on and two months off. And then in addition to that draft, he had 70,000 burden bearers, it says, and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Very heavy, hard manual labor. And then he had 3,300 officers over all those men. So he, he was demanding a lot from the northern tribes. And they had their right to be upset and, and grieved with, with this task. This was a, a huge burden for them to have to shoulder. And it would especially cause tension if they feel like they're doing a disproportionate amount of work without the benefits that come from it. All the great construction projects, the palace, the temple, all of those were in the south, in Judah. So, so the north kind of felt like maybe Alberta feels right now, where they're doing all the work and generating all the income and getting none of the benefits. So the way that Jeroboam's complaint reminds you, I think intentionally, of the Israelites' own situation under 
Egypt. You remember their forced labor making bricks for the pyramids in Egypt. And there's a number of parallels that, that are th- I think are deliberately drawn here in the text. The author wants us to be thinking in these terms. The phrase heavy service that you find here in this chapter, it only occurs six times in the Bible, and it's either with reference to this chapter here or to Egypt. So for many Israelites, Solomon's kingdom was starting to feel a lot like Egypt. They were starting to wonder what was the point of getting out of Egypt only to be enslaved to Solomon. Already in chapter 3, the first thing that we read about Solomon's reign is he marries the daughter of Pharaoh. And in chapter 10, you can read about how Solomon started also importing horses and chariots from Egypt. He had a very close relationship with Egypt. And like Egypt now, Solomon's kingdom put Israel into slavery. And not only into physical slavery, but into spiritual slavery as well. We read about how Solomon built uh, shrines for Baal and for, for the other gods. So like Egypt, this kingdom was turning into a place of physical and spiritual slavery for the rest of Israel. Well, I believe that these similarities are intentionally being highlighted for us. And Jeroboam's request also sounds a lot like the description of the Israelites under Pharaoh. And now, because we read the chapter already a moment ago, we know that Rehoboam is also going to respond a lot like Pharaoh responded. He's going to double down. He's going to increase the workload. He's going to call the people lazy, or at least imply that. But before he gives a response, he gives them three days, or he asks them, that is, to give him three days, to consider their request. And he first goes and takes counsel with the old men who had served his father while he was still alive. He asks them in verse 6, How do you advise me to answer this people? Now, I emphasize those last two words and the way he says that, because you can almost feel his contempt for the people. He doesn't say our people or the people, but this, this people over here. Rehoboam grew up in the palace, and he enjoyed power and privilege his entire life. And he had no idea how to relate to these common people with very legitimate grievances. Well, the elders are, are obviously much more sensible than the king. These were people who had served under Solomon. Many of them probably were still righteous and godly men. They were people that Solomon had chosen before Solomon went off to serve other gods. So they told him in verse 7, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. We're reminded of what Solomon himself taught in Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And these elders, whether they were good men or not, they recognized a timeless political truth. Most people want a government, and they're happy to pay taxes, and they're happy to do their part as long as they feel heard and understood and represented by their government. You might think of the American Revolution. I don't know if I'll get in trouble for this, but whether you agree with the revolution or not, you see the same principle here. You know, if King George had just listened to the people, there probably never would have been a revolution. You think of the same thing in France. It was the endless abuse, the endless taking advantage of the people that ultimately led to that bloody French Revolution. 
There's that point where the divide between the political elites and the common people reaches a breaking point. You see the same thing even today in Brexit or in the American election. Political elites can't go on forever ignoring the will of the people. Eventually, it always reaches a breaking point. And so the text doesn't even tell us what the motive of these elders was, whether they were sincerely caring about the people or whether they were just being smart politicians, just manipulative. But the point is they were clearly right. A soft answer turns away wrath, and that's exactly what Solomon needed, or not Solomon, Rehoboam needed to do at this time. But then you notice verse 8. Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that these older men gave him. He was a spoiled palace brat with every sense of entitlement and no understanding of how the real world works. You don't even have to read the rest of this chapter to know exactly how this story is going to end. These kinds of stories never end well. And, And notice we're told that Rehoboam abandoned the counsel of the old men before he even went to the young men. It's not like he listened to both sides and then evaluated his options and ultimately went with the advice of his friends. He went to his friends because he didn't like the advice that the older men gave him. He couldn't stomach the idea of capitulating to these people's demands. And so he went to his peers, people who had grown up with him in the palace, and he asked them what they thought. And you just have to bury your your head in your hands and think, don't be so foolish, Solomon. Just swallow your pride. Not Solomon again, sorry, Rehoboam. Don't be so foolish. Swallow your pride and listen to these people. But such is the foolishness of sin. It should be a simple matter to know when we're ruining ourselves and to turn around and repent. But apart from God's grace, the, the reaction that we get from Rehoboam is the reaction that every sinner has. We double down. We destroy ourselves. And so Rehoboam asked his friends, just like he asked the elders, what do you advise that I answer this people who have, who have told me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? Notice he conveniently left out the other part about them saying that they were willing to serve him if he did that. So he puts their request in the worst light possible. And that's what we tend to do when we want to think the worst about a group of people. And the answer that his friends give, it tells you a lot about what these these men were like and what Rehoboam was like. They tell him in verse 10, here's what you should tell them. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Now, I have to be honest, that's, that's a really cleaned up version of what they, they told him to tell, tell him. And you can thank the ESV translators for that. Literally in the Hebrew it says, my little one or my little man is thicker than my father's loins. So they might have been referring to a finger, maybe to something else. But you can figure out for yourselves what they meant by that. It was a crude way of saying, I'm a much bigger man than my father was. And you'll notice it was just a a private, vulgar joke between friends. Rehoboam Rehoboam didn't even go out and tell the people those, those words. It was just a joke between these crude, immature boys. And that's what they were. Crude, immature, foolish, grown up boys. They associate masculinity with just brute strength. The biggest man is the one who can yell the loudest and spit the furthest. 
They think that leadership is all about flexing your muscles. And they've spent their entire lives there in the comfort of the palace. They have no political experience. They have no idea how the world works. And they're still amazingly immature. Interestingly, the text calls them young men when, in fact, at least Rehoboam would have been around 40 years old when he began to reign. So these were young men who had grown up and still were young men. They're what some pastors call boys who can shave. Not all boys grow up. Some just grow taller. And these, these, these ancient texts are just so amazingly contemporary, aren't they? They describe the human condition that doesn't change over the course of the centuries. Now, as I mentioned, Rehoboam didn't actually share that crude joke with the people, but he did repeat the rest of what they told him to say in verse 14. He spoke to the people according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Some commentaries say that that scorpions were actually a special type of whip that were used for the lowest slaves with with hooks in them. uh, That may be the case, it might not. But whether or not that's true, it's obvious that Rehoboam was completely incapable of listening to a perfectly legitimate grievance from the people. And we see that it cost him the kingdom. Verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king didn't listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, O David. And so Israel went to their tents. So Rehoboam ultimately fulfilled his own father's words in Proverbs 13, verse 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm. By one foolish decision then, Rehoboam destroyed that bond between the north and the south that had taken David and Solomon their entire lives to build, and it was always so tense, it was always on the line. David had done so much, especially to win over the allegiance of those northern tribes. It's far easier to build trust or, or sorry, it's far easier to break trust than it is to build it. You think of what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, on speaking of weapons of war, that was Rehoboam's next recourse. You can see how stubborn and foolish and set in his ways he is. First, he sends Adoram, who is taskmaster, taskmaster over all the forced labor, to go and force the people into submission. You can see in this just the evidence of someone who's, who's clueless, who's used to getting his way, who's never been told no. He figures the people will just automatically obey if he sends an official representative of the government over to them. He didn't realize it, but it was a death mission for Adoram. The people were in no, me- no mood at all to see him. Rehoboam and his friends, they badly underestimated the depth of the people's anger and frustration with a government that wouldn't listen to them. And so when Adoram came to the people, they, they stoned him to death. 
Well, as soon as Rehoboam and his friends heard about it, they mounted their chariots and they fled to Jerusalem. But you notice Rehoboam is still too foolish to see where all of this was going. All he ever knew was brute force. He had no other option in his arsenal. He was so used to getting his way. And he must have been thinking, how dare these people disobey me, the king? And so when he gets to Jerusalem, he immediately summons his military generals, the ones that were still loyal to him anyways, and he prepared an army of 180,000 chosen soldiers to crush that rebellion. And you just imagine what would have happened, the bloodshed that would have happened if he had been allowed to carry this out. Well, at this point, for the first time in the chapter, God intervened by sending a prophet. God's message to the prophet was simple, but it was also shocking. You see it in verse 24. The prophet told the king and the people there, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up and, or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. What a shocking thing to hear from God. All of this, says God, is from me. That's the final word that we hear in this, in this record of events. When the people heard this, it says they, they listened to the word of the Lord, and they actually did go back home. After all, what else do you do? If God says, this is all from me, what further action can you take? It must have been a thoughtful journey, at least for some of them, as they went back to their homes thinking, wow, all of Rehoboam's foolishness and all that happened because of it is God's plan. It was in God's hands. And that's the lesson that's stamped onto this chapter unmistakably. I skipped over it earlier, but verse 15 tells us the same thing. It says, The king didn't listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which he spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So all of this was from God. That's the message that this chapter leaves us with. God had set his face against the kingdom of Rehoboam, and there was nothing that he could do to stop it. It says, in fact, that he did every. It says that everything he did was precisely God's tool to make it happen. God's hand was behind this. God's hand was even behind Rehoboam's foolishness and stupidity. That, even that, was God's doing. Well, what are we to learn from this? One thing we should learn is this. God gives wisdom... And God also gives folly as he chooses to lift up and to bring down. Just as God made Solomon the wisest of men, he also made Rehoboam into an utter fool. We're reminded again of Pharaoh in Egypt where God hardened Pharaoh's heart deliberately in order to destroy him. Just like Pharaoh, Rehoboam was a tool in God's hands to carry out the punishment that he said would come because of Solomon's idolatry. God brought that about by allowing Solomon's son to become a fool. Proverbs 21, verse 1, teaches us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. When princes or those ruling over a nation show themselves to be fools, 
It never takes God by surprise. God is never sitting up there wringing his hands, wondering what to do with these leaders who aren't listening to him. No, it's he himself who has allowed them to be exactly what they are, who's allowed them to collapse into utter self-destructive folly. These disastrous, disastrous, destructive policies that are totally detached from reality and can't work, whether they're implemented in Jerusalem 3,000 years ago or even today in Ottawa or Washington, D.C. or Brussels or wherever else, they are evidence of God's judgment against a nation. We can think of what John Calvin wrote in his Institutes. When people rule unjustly or incompetently, when they have been raised up, They have been raised up by God to punish the wickedness of the people under them. In Rehoboam's time, that incompetence led to the kingdom crumbling into pieces. Ten of the twelve tribes decided that they would walk away. You can call it Isrexit, if you like. But at the same time, this record of history offers a cautionary warning to us in our own day as we see similar things happening From a Christian standpoint, we recognize with with humble fear the righteous judgment of God against governing authorities and a political elite that's been detached from reality and unable to serve the legitimate interests of its people, a government that seems to oppose good and call good evil and evil good. We recognize with fear God's judgment against that. Those who sow the wind will reap the whirlwind, and righteous men should see it and fear. But at the same time, if we're desiring to learn from this history, to be taught by God's word so that we wouldn't repeat history, then let's also take care that moments like this, when we have legitimate grievances or when we see the people with legitimate grievances, that moments like this and movements like this don't take us as God's people to places that we wouldn't want to go as God's people, that we ourselves would end up being found under God's righteous judgment. Jeroboam turned out to be just as bad a ruler as Rehoboam, if perhaps in different ways. And in fact, it would have been obvious to anyone then who was paying attention right from the beginning that he was never a godly man. You see in the next verses, the golden calves, that's his first, the first things that he does as leader. He sets up this false religion, these golden calves, and they would have been a dead giveaway to anyone who is paying attention. Where do you read about golden calves? Well, only under Aaron and only followed by God's judgment. He may have been a capable and competent leader, and he represented legitimate grievances, but he was still an ungodly man, and he took those northern tribes in a profoundly ungodly direction. If there were any righteous men in the north at that time, and surely there were, they would have been thinking, we need to guard ourselves carefully, lest we find ourselves also here justifying what ought never to be justified or excusing Jeroboam's inexcusable actions. And so today also as Christians, we might rejoice to see God carrying out judgment against a godless ruling class. That's a legitimate spirit of grievance to have. But the spirit of revolution should never cause us to join hands with another kind of popular evil. Just because it's the grassroots will of the people does not automatically make something righteous any more than the opinions of the elite. 
In the end, Jeroboam and the northern tribes would also suffer God's judgment for sins that were at least as bad. Every king in Israel after Jeroboam would carry that refrain. He walked in all the sins of Jeroboam. And surely there were many godly Israelites in the north at this time, weeping over their nation. What a tragedy when they had to choose between Rehoboam or Jeroboam, an elite ungodliness that has gone on for far too long, or another king representing a popular ungodliness that they knew would spell trouble for later. Surely they would have been crying out for God to send the king that God had promised, the one option that would lead them to righteousness. And that's where we'll finish also this morning. As Christians, we need to remember our king, our only king, is Christ. He has redeemed our lives from a kingdom of darkness. We sang about that also earlier this morning, that all people in the world walk in darkness. And our King Christ has redeemed us from that darkness, which as it turns out is represented in both parties here in in Israel. And our King, as Christians, our King is reigning in heaven. He's building his church. He's destroying the works of darkness. And through the gospel, as it spreads throughout this nation and as it spreads throughout the world, through the gospel, he is establishing and teaching true righteousness and putting it into the hearts and lives and homes and even communities and perhaps even nations where he's building his kingdom. That's the only king that we as Christians can call our own. That's the only king to whom we should give our wholehearted allegiance. And scripture tells us he will reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, whichever party those enemies might belong to. The nations rage, says Psalm 2, and the peoples of earth plot and scheme, and the kings and the ruling forces of the earth take counsel together against him, but he who sits in heaven laughs at them. If we see the rulers of our day promoting folly, it's because God has set his face against them to destroy them, and Christ will put them under his feet. And he's also taught us then as his people to pray that that would happen, to pray that his kingdom would come here on earth. And so we must pray for that and labor to that end. We should pray as the catechism teaches us, destroy the works of the devil and every power which raises itself up against you. That's our agenda, both politically as well as in our own lives, in our own homes. His perfect unchanging righteousness. That is our agenda. That's what we stand for. And so, brothers and sisters, then consider the sovereign rule of God to lift up, to bring down, in order to establish his kingdom. And that's the kingdom that we belong to. Our King Jesus Christ is ruling and will accomplish everything that he has set out to accomplish, in spite of, no, even by means of the foolish plotting of those who counsel against him. So let us fear and let us surrender our whole lives to that king and our hearts and our allegiances as well. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing from Psalm.